You're listening to the New World Order. My name's Klaatu, and in this episode, we continue our tour of Bin Utils. Bin Utils is a package in Slackware in the software set D for Delta. It contains a bunch of things having to do with uh, compiling code specifically getting things into a binary format so that your computer can execute it as an application. We've already covered AS and LD, which are the, the big stars of that package. That's the reason that the package really, really exists, is the assembler, GNU assembler, and GNU linker. We did that in a previous episode, so this time we're, we're on to, um, I don't know, the, more of the utilitarian things. I mean, even AS and LD are, are arguably very much utilitarian. You don't usually interact with them directly. They are things that happen through GCC. And in this episode, we'll start out with C++ Filt. But first, we're going to take an email. Got an email from DeepGeek, and he was saying, I was thinking about the idea of an immutable OS. Uh, this is in reference to episode 377, in which I discussed Silver Blue by Fedora. So he says, I was thinking about the idea of an immutable OS, and looking it up online, I discovered that there is also an open source version of this idea called Micro OS. I was wondering how a Debian guy could have something similar. He says, could the same benefits be had by a Debian user after installing a base, command line only, system, and adding X support, taking the mount point for slash user and putting it into a read-only compressed file system like, say, SquashFS, and then installing another Debian system for all the other packages into a Cheroot environment. I'm thinking this and adding a flat pack or two for some apps would have essentially the same effect. A user of such a system could then remount the slash USR directory monthly or something just for security updates and then re-squash it. What do you think? Would this reap similar benefits as Silver Blue and Micro OS? This is obviously a really intriguing question and brings to mind a lot of questions, further questions, about, I guess, what are we aiming for here? Like, what what's the real benefit to having this micro footprint of an OS that doesn't get changed, except maybe, you know, like DeepGeek is proposing here every now and again to, to update, to update security stuff. What's the real goal here? And I gave that a lot of thought before responding to DeepGeek. Uh, I came up with this idea that for the user, I think the main advantage, and, and this is for, 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 I don't want to say for better or for worse, but, you know, take this for whatever you will in terms of value, but I think a user, from the user perspective, one of the main conscious advantages is, well, I've got this OS, and if, if, if at, any, at any point I decide I've screwed up my user land too much and just want to do a reset, then I could sort of just nuke my system but keep the core of my OS intact. And I, I do feel like there's some value to that. I do feel like sometimes you do appreciate having just that core component of your operating system on a highly protected and separate in in a separate partition. Sometimes literally it's a separate partition. Sometimes it's a, a hard, different hard drive. And you can reinstall, for instance, Slackware, but you could keep that bootable section that you, you feel confident in. And so you're just re uh, reinstalling, I don't know, applications outside of the uh, slash USR part of your of your OS or something like something like that right you can you can kind of separate that out and I do imagine that there's some advantage to that and that's a very kind of surface level like what's in it for me kind of kind of question and I, I do feel like that's a useful thing to have and, and we have that on on Linux and Unix anyway in a sense I mean that's kind of the design of the system you've got slash USR and that houses 
a bunch of the normal stuff, and you don't get into really the local modifications until you get into slash USR slash local slash bin. And unfortunately, and for whatever reason, I feel like a lot of Linux users, myself included, we ignore that, we, we ignore that, um, that system, that that methodology, because we we think to ourselves, well, this is silly to have a user local bin, because everything's local. I'm I'm the sole user of my computer, so I don't need to differentiate between user bin and user local bin. And how many times, certainly on Slackware, how many times have I uh, installed stuff straight to user bin? Well, I could give you an exact number if you wanted. Um, because I can do a wc-l on var log packages and tell you that uh, I've done it exactly 842,753 times. Like all of the packages in my in 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 my Slackware install, they, they've all been installed to user you know not not all into user bin, but they all go into my into the same place. That there's there's nothing that I've differentiated. Maybe there's one or two that I'm skipping over that that that, that I that I can't remember. But generally speaking, I don't intentionally. I mean, by comparison, if I do an ls-l on user local bin, for instance, I've got I've got one, two, three. I've got three things there. Not four things. Sorry, four things. Uh, and and those are you know not even. Some of those aren't even real, like Firefox is pointing out to opt, uh, Ardor 6 is pointing out to opt, and then I've got some little scripts that I've installed, I mean I've got a couple of scripts that I've installed really, uh, some of them are fake just for demo purposes that I've never cleared out, but yeah, there, there's there's a bunch of stuff there, a couple of things, and, and but they're, they're countable on just one hand of fingers, there, it's not even, you know, nowhere near 842,000. So, point being, I've got a lot of stuff that goes to my system drive, my system partition, and very, very few things that get separated into a local area. Even though I think by design, a lot of the stuff that's outside of the standard system should really be going to a local place. And and in a way, I feel like saying, okay, well, here's everything that really is important in a squash FS that you can't get near is kind of a weird sort of way of just doing that. It's just saying, okay, well, here's clearer divisions between what you should be messing around with and what you shouldn't be messing around with. Which I, I don't know if that's a bad thing, I'm just saying, or a good thing for that matter. It's just, it does, it does seem like that's, that's recognizing that a lot of us don't differentiate between the core system, like the root area, and the user area. Would it provide any of the perceived benefits of Silver Blue or Micro OS? And for the record, I didn't know about Micro OS until DB told me about it. But certainly, would it would it provide any of the benefits of Silverblue? Maybe in a way, Silverblue does a lot of stuff with C groups. So there's a bunch of literal, in the sense of sandboxing as a technology term, not as a thing that you put outside for kids to play in. It does sandboxing. If you have everything in a Squash FS, and then you've got applications running outside of that Squash FS. They're not really sandboxed between each other, but if you're just running flat packs, then that's something. So I don't know. I short story. I think there is something there. He, he emailed me back. I, I emailed him my my very few thoughts on the subject at, at the time, which was essentially I think I said, "Hey, look out, flat packs uh, install stuff to slash var." So just be aware that that directory might get more. No, actually, slash. I'm sorry, home dot var is where it goes. But if it's installed by root, it would be slash var or something like that. So that would be maybe activity and directories that you might not normally 
think that that would get that kind of activity. So he says, uh, thanks for mentioning the live CD permanently installed. Oh, because I had said, oh, this sounds kind of like just installing a, a live CD. He says, since Silverblue has installed the new image and can just go back to the old image as a choice in Grub, I think this will be the most Silverblueish solution. However, I'm stuck running custom compiled video drivers for NVIDIA's sake, and running ZFS Fuse uh, is now deprecated, so I'll soon be forced to custom compile ZFS drivers. Since um, uh, due to licensing issues, a live CD with a ZFS precompiled is illegal to ship, so you have to do it yourself. It's easier on Debian than on most, but the instructions are complex enough to make a sane hacker recoil in disgust. And he, he provides a link on how to do that. Uh, so he says, that's probably not going to happen. He says, I did once mount a squash FS on slash USR, and it worked fine, but I had to have the option in my slash Etsy slash FS tab to mount the original slash USR on a, a USB uh, drive for updates. Mounting slash USR worked just fine as a read-only squash mount. Oh, that's pretty good. And I did this for a while because I remember having an old laptop that had a spinning rust disk and CF cards just came out and I spotted and acquired a device to mount a CF card as a disk in a laptop. It worked, and I did an episode on it for Talk Geek to Me. That's his old podcast. I think the idea is doable. Here is what I'm thinking about now. Let me know if you see potential pitfalls. He says, install a Debian-based system. That's a standard terminal-based system only. It's just text console. Install DKMS packages for ZFS and NVIDIA drivers. So that's the kernel um, method such that you can install drivers um, and that they get, that your kernel gets uh, awareness of when you have to update drivers and modules and stuff. Install Zorg and a LightX environment. Install schroot. I don't know what schroot is. To manage multiple schroot environments easy, easily. Oh, that's probably what schroot is. And daemons and launchers for flat packs and snaps and app images as required. Of course, app images don't require any of that stuff, but snaps, well, snaps do, and then flat pack it wouldn't require a daemon, but it does require flat pack. Uh, that should make a beefy yet applicationless X terminal of sorts. Build a Cheroot environment and put another Debian system in it and add Debian applications there. Sandbox internet applications, browsers, and so on by using flat pack or snap. If something's not available this way, ZFS can easily clone a Debian system at this point, and this can be an app application-only sandbox. S-Cheroot can easily run these from any menu system as well. The base system can be security updated by unmounting the SquashFS system and running apps update system. All the S-Cheroot managed Cheroot systems can run apps update system simultaneously via S-Cheroot. Um, S-Cheroot can be told to run a command on all of its Cheroots simultaneously as root. And the flat packs and snaps will update themselves and the app images can be updated over uh, a terminal-based utility. I think it could work. Thoughts? Um, I mean, I think this is kind of brilliant. Um, I, I, I would love to see this in action. I know from dealing with flat packs and snaps and app images that there are all kinds of little tiny quirks that are bound to rear their head if you were to actually implement this. I can just see it. I don't know what it'll be. It'll have something to do with permissions, locations of data. 
It'll be something to do with uh, can you actually access some data that under normal circumstances with some application you'd be able to to access or maybe a device can you find your microphone device can you find your your game pad can you find something that normally yes you would be able to find it without even thinking about it but because you've got everything running inside of a sandbox inside of a sandbox inside of a cheroot uh, something is different so, I mean, you, you see this on Silverblue for sure, and probably MicroOS, and that's why, for instance, Silverblue has the, the toolbox utility, the, the thing that you launch to sort of make little pockets of, of mutable air, you know, s- sections in, within your OS. So I, I have a feeling there, there will be something like that going on something there will be some surprise there um especially yeah just if you need if you need to access data from within a flat pack or a snap application or or even an app image who knows and and everything's different however it kind of sounds like it should work i mean it really does it kind of sounds like it ought to work it sounds like a crazy idea and i don't know if i would rely on it for like i don't know media production or anything like that but it does sound feasible so i don't know we'll keep We'll keep up with Deep Geek. Hopefully, he actually gives it a go and reports in. We'll find out. But uh, if if any of you, dear listeners, want to try that, then I'm sure Deep Geek wouldn't mind hearing a report from you. So yeah, let's just uh, let's see if anyone tries it. Let's see what happens. Cause boy, does it sound interesting. Really interesting system design for sure. I mean, if nothing else, it's an interesting challenge system design wise. You know, it's just that. If, if nothing else, that's that's enough for this to be intriguing. Okay, let's get into C++ Filt. Keep wanting to make it flicked, like conflict, but it's actually Filt, like filter. And C++ Filt, I thought that the, the man page for this was actually quite, quite good. C++ Filt demangles C++ and Java symbols. Okay, maybe the name, in retrospect, isn't the best, but the, the man page actually is really good. So it says, the C++ and Java languages provide function overloading. Now, if you've ever heard of people, this is Klaatu again, not the man page. If you've ever heard programmers talk, a lot of times you will, you'll hear people say, oh, this is an overloaded function, or don't worry, you can overload that function, something like that. And if you're ever writing in, for instance, Java with a good IDE, like NetBeans or something like that, it'll tell you, Eclipse, whatever, it'll tell you when for instance, you need to overload a function. Like, you've invoked this function, but you haven't really defined it within your application yet. You need to overload it, bring it into your local space, and and define what exactly you want it to do. And, and you get a little overload um, notation in there. So, unfortunately, people don't often talk about what overloading is. And lo and behold, right here, hidden away in this man page about C++ Filt is one of the best explanations that I've ever read about it. It says, um, which means that you can write many functions with the same name, providing that each function takes parameters of different types. And that's just a, that's a beautifully written explanation of what overloading the function means. And I don't say that lightly. Um, I, I've, I've often, I, I have a real problem with, with people using, uh, jargon in, in inappropriate settings. And I've just, I, I can't tell you. And I, I think it's an easy, it's an easy mistake to make as a person, like to use jargon when, when your audience doesn't know what that jargon is. And the, the reason for that is because we, as humans, we start to hear words and then, we start to think that those words have now been defined. And and so we forget that there are people out there who don't have the definition of those words that have become commonplace to us. So we do it all the time. I mean, we all 
do it. Um, and and it just it annoys me when I hear people talking about, for instance, overloading a function, as 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 if though everyone knows what that means. And and I've heard it in lots of different settings. And I mean, it's it's a big topic to to figure out how we can avoid that. Like you can't possibly stop using the jargon because that's why the jargon exists to make communication faster and more efficient and clearer. So you wouldn't want to stop using it, and you can't possibly stop after you've used it every single time and redefine it. Um, if there was like maybe a a hook that we could do where we say if talking to person for the first time, then define jargon. If person nods then continue if person you know whatever something like that maybe but it's it's difficult this man page defining it though is just a stroke of genius i uh, i commend the author of this man page so it continues to say in order to be able to distinguish these similarly named functions c++ and java encode them into a low-level assembler name which uniquely identifies each different version. This process is known as mangling. The C++ filt program does the inverse. It decodes, that is demangles, low-level names into user-level names so that they can be read. Okay, so just once again, this man page, my favorite man page of all time, I think, so far, this is brilliant. I mean, it doesn't assume that you know what it's talking about. And in one paragraph, just one paragraph, it explains, it gives you all the context you need. And I think it's fair to say that if you don't know what it's talking about after that one paragraph, then you know the unspoken alert there is, or not really unspoken, it's the alert is, if you don't know, then you don't know enough about C++ and Java languages to proceed with this tool because it says right up front the C++ and Java languages provide function overloading and then it explains what the overloading is and and then it continues on to talk about how it's achieved. If you don't understand it then you need to back up and do more research on C++ and Java and I think that's fair. Like everything has to start somewhere. They're announcing where it's starting and then it's breaking all the base terms down for us in case we're not there and now we're all there now we understand so the assembler language the assembler code rather takes functions that are named the same but are unique enough to tell them apart and gives them a unique identifier and we know how to do that now we've we've done this we've done or rather we know how to look at the assembler code we have done this in the previous episode so what i'm going to do is i'm going to open up a file called i guess test.cpp so this is c++ and I'm going to create something. I'm going to do some function overloading. So we'll do an hash include IO stream with angle brackets around the IO stream. That's to get us fancy little functions like C out and indle end line. And we'll using namespace standard STD semicolon. And we're going to create two functions that we are going to call, uh, let's call them penguin. So we really, really know that this is, this is stuff that we created. I don't like using terms that that could be something built into the language or something, you know, something that's it's hard to tell. So penguin, that's pretty unique. So, okay, so first we'll do hash include IO stream with angle brackets around the IO stream. That gives us uh, the C out function so that we can print stuff out to our terminal easily. Also, I think I think that also provides indl, indl, the inline function. So then using namespace standard std semicolon, and then we'll do void penguin parentheses int i close parentheses open curly brace c out redirect redirect towards c out quote integer is space 
close quote, redirect, redirect i, so that's whatever we, whatever this function received as an integer i, that's what we're going to use, and then redirect, redirect indl, e-n-d-l, for the end line, and then semicolon, and then close the curly brace. Now we're going to create another function called penguin, again, void penguin. So that's, this is, you know, under normal circumstances, and certainly in C, not C++, that would just, that would break our compile process. It would, it would tell me that it had received the same name that's already been declared, can't continue, but we're overloading. So this is penguin, and then parentheses, int i, comma, int n close parentheses, open curly brace. So this penguin is distinguished from the first penguin because this one requires int i and int n. The other one only required int i. So we'll do c out, redirect, redirect towards the c out, quote, added together, close quote, redirect, redirect, i plus n, just do some quick math there, and then redirect, redirect, indle, semicolon, close curly brace. So in a really nice application. I guess we can do that, actually. I was going to say, in a nice program, we would we would give ourselves the ability... Yeah, no, we're not going to do that. So in a, in a good application, we would give ourselves the ability to define what int i and what int n we're going to be. This is a quick example. We're not doing C++ tutorials here. We're just doing a overloading function tutorial. So int space main, parentheses, parentheses, curly brace, penguin, parentheses, three, close parentheses, semicolon, and then penguin parentheses three comma six close parentheses semicolon. So what's that? What that what that has done is called one function called penguin with one integer, and then it calls again penguin but with two integers. And I think you know how that'll go. Uh, return zero semicolon and close curly brace. And if you don't know how it'll go, you'll you'll find out. So we save that, and now it, rather than well, I guess we could we could compile it first just for fun. G plus plus test dot cpp. By default, it names our output a dot out. So I'll do a dot slash a dot out. Integer is three added together nine. That, that's correct, right? Because we called the first penguin with an argument of three, and the second one as an argument with three and six. Now, again, just note that we haven't given it extra features. Like I can't, I can't do a uh, dot slash a dot out uh, four and expect it to actually know what that four was for. So it still says integer is three added together nine. So it, it'll always say integer is three added together is nine because we hard-coded the value. If we wanted to, to get the the integer, like to, to be able to define the integers, we would have to add options to our C++ or, or we'd have to we'd have to look at the positional arguments at least and import those into our code. And that's a completely separate process that has really no advantage to what we're doing here. Okay, so what we are doing is we're trying to find out what C++ filt does. And the way that we get assembler code, if you'll recall from last time, is actually if we were in a classroom setting, I would say, can you recall how we would do how we did that last time? And if you do, then congratulations. Um, I I do remember. It is G++ dash capital S. And if you'll recall that, that runs GCC, or G++, I guess in this case, um, up until, or, or it, it compiles up to the assembler code, and then it stops. It doesn't it does not complete the process of a normal compile. So G++ dash capital S test.cpp. So this should put, this should output a file called test.s. Did it? Yes, it did. So now I can do most on test.s and I can look at it and I see a bunch of different um, notations here. And, you know, to my untrained eye, none of these make any sense. Absolutely none of these mean anything to me. 
So I've got things like dot file test cpp. Okay, admittedly that that makes sense. Dot local underscore ztstl8 underscore underscore ionit dot com with two m's underscore ztstl8 underscore underscore ionit comma one comma one dot section dot ro data dot lco colon dot string integer is so some of this is looking vaguely familiar here's a dot text if you'll recall we were looking at um dot text sections with adder two line uh dot global underscore z seven penguin penguini penguin with an i at the end yeah, so there's a bunch of stuff in there, and I don't know what it, any of it really means, but there's a bunch of stuff that we could kind of latch on to. It's enough to work with, I think. Uh, let's see how many lines that is. I'm just kind of curious. Wtest.s. It's 153 lines, and the original the original code for test.cpp is 17 lines. I think it's always interesting to just kind of differentiate or to look at the difference between yeah what what gets compiled and what it looks like before the source code or in its source code form. So anyway, we're looking at a simpler code and we know that C++ filt, actually I don't think we do know anything about it yet. So if you do a man uh, C++ filt, then you get uh, things like dash underscore. That's a cool one. Dash underscore is strip underscore. So dash dash strip dash underscore. On some systems, both C and C++ uh, compilers put an underscore in front of every name. For example, the C name foo gets the low-level name underscore foo. This option removes the initial underscore. Whether C++ filter removes the underscore by default is target dependent. Um, dash in says don't strip the initial underscore. Dash dash no dash strip dash underscore. Do not remove the initial underscore. Dash p dash dash no dash params when demangling the name of a function do not display the types of the function the the types of the function's parameters uh types no verbose formatting stuff yeah so it seems like generally speaking we should just be able to do c plus plus filt and then some name according to the man page it's just we, all we need to do is give it a, f a symbol, rather, a symbol from the application, which we've looked at, and we found a bunch of different different underscore notation objects in this assembler code. So we could kind of just take our pick, really. I mean, and we might as well start at the top. So I'm going to look at most on test.s again. Well, here was that underscore zstl8 ionit. So let's copy that and do a paste after C++ filt. And that tells me that underscore ZSTL8 underscore underscore IO init is the standard colon colon underscore underscore IO init. So that seems like a pretty low level kind of function um, that probably isn't super specific to our application, to this particular ap application. But then if I look down one more section here, I we found we've got that underscore Z7 penguini. And if I do a C++ filt on underscore Z7 penguini, then I get as the result penguin parentheses int close parentheses and that's that that's that's that one function the first function that we wrote that only accepts a single a, a single um, integer so now if I scroll further down into a similar section that's named dot lc so that was from the section called dot lco or sorry lc0 if I scroll down a little bit, there, there's some stuff in the middle here that that, that that sort of references a bunch of stuff, like I see C out here mentioned. So I kind of feel like that might be more more built-in stuff. But then there's this other section that's kind of similar, .lc1, and there's a .string added together, .text, .global, seven, uh, uh, Z7, penguin, knee, e. So 
Z7 penguin and then two eyes at the end. Can't imagine what that's going to be, so I'll paste it in after C++ filt. And oh, look at that. It is. It's the function. It's the penguin function, but this one is two integers. Int int. So those are the those are the designators of those two functions. And then of course if you if you do like um what was it? Type or no type? Maybe it was no type. There was a, an option in there. Types. Uh, types. No. Uh, there. I thought there was something. Oh, no params. That was it. No params. No dash params. Okay. So if I do C plus plus filt dash dash no dash params on either one of them, really, um, then I just get the name of the function. So I'm not really sure why I would want to do that, but who knows. So th there's the name of the function. Well, I guess that might be one reason you would want to do that. Maybe you're doing some kind of, you maybe you're scripting something and you want to find any overloaded functions uh, in this particular thing. And so you just want the name of the function so that you know what to look for. Who knows? Um, yeah, so there's a couple of different options as you as you can kind of see. There's there's a couple of things that you might need just to tweak the output mostly is are the options there and i think that's everything i've got to say really about c++ filt i mean it's not as you can see it's not a super complex application it is uh it 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 does one thing and it does it well and that is it demangles stuff back into something that you would recognize from the code base if you were to look at the code base i kind of feel like it's probably time for a cup of coffee so let me go do that you go get your own cup of coffee, and then we'll come back here for more Ben Udles. back with coffee. I hope you have your coffee ready because we're about to go through DLL tool. There's no man page for DLL tool. It didn't deserve one, I guess. I'm not sure. It's it's um it's got to be a a niche utility this one, right? Cuz I mean DLL I think aren't used really at all for Linux. Um, I mean, I've never seen one distributed with Linux. I've seen them distributed with games that run on Wine, for instance, or or more recently uh, that run on Steam Proton or, or Photon Proton, I think, right? Yeah. So I've seen DLLs, but I, I don't know I don't know much about them. So I read up a little bit on them in a on a Sigwin website. Sigwin being C C Y G W I N. It's the Unix environment that you can install on Windows, or one of them, I guess. The other one is WSL now, but at the for for a very long time it was the only environment. Well, maybe not the only, but certainly the 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 main environment. Uh, I don't know if there are others. And and it says that there are three parts to a DLL. Well, first of all, it says DLLs are dynamic link libraries, which means that they're linked into your program at runtime instead of build time. There are three parts: the exports, the code and data, and the import library. So the code and data are the part of the things that you write, is the functions and the variables and all that other stuff. They are usually compiled into things like object files. They can be put into DLLs. They are not part of your .exe. The exports contain a list of functions and variables that the DLL makes available to other programs, so that makes sense. And then the import library is a regular Unix-like .a library, but it only contains the tiny bit of information needed to tell the OS how your program interacts with or imports the DLL. This information is linked into your .exe 
Again, don't exactly know what that is. This is also generated by DLL tool. So, I mean, I know, just to be clear, I know theoretically what a .exe is. I mean, it's like an executable file, I guess, right? But I don't know what, I don't know, I don't know the nuances of things like your functions and variables and such not being placed into the .exe. Well, I guess the, the nuance is that it's not placed into your .exe. It is a DLL. So it's external to your to your executable, which sounds like modularity. I like modularity, so I guess maybe that's a good thing. I don't know any about anything about the specifics, so I don't really have an opinion, I guess. From what I can gather, and this is just a working theory, so if you know better, please do correct me, but as far as I can tell, DLL tool is not useful on Linux, with a possible exception of maybe when you're cross-compiling for, for when you're targeting Windows. And as I have not done that myself, I have no, I have really no, no way of understanding what that would involve, except to learn, um, what is it, min, min gw or, or whatever it is, the cross-compiling tool for, from Linux to Windows. So there is that option, but just to talk about DLL tool, I don't know that that's going to be worth that amount of investment, uh, especially since I don't really intend to compile out to Windows myself anytime soon. So I'm going to say, generally speaking, DLL tool isn't something you're going to use in your tool chain when compiling code uh, on Slackware, with the, the specialized exception of when you're targeting Windows, when you're cross-compiling for Windows, uh, in which case you are producing PE32 executables that go that, that, that talk in Windows language and can be used by Windows. DLL on Windows, as far as I know, there's no way to really use a DLL file on Linux. I don't believe that, that Linux knows how to use a DLL. I mean, you can through Wine, but that's obviously through Wine, so you're, you're now using different calls for that to, to work. Um, Linux natively has no use for DLL, and therefore I'm not going to go in-depth with DLL tool. It just isn't isn't something that that makes sense, and so we're skipping over it. Sort of. That's that's the long and short of it. Um, you you can try it. It is definitely something that you can can try. But I was not able to produce any useful output with DLL tool, and I certainly wasn't able to um I certainly wasn't able to make a, a any kind of library that was usable with with either GCC or DLL tool or the combination of the two. There are some some tutorials online that I did find that talked a little bit about. There was one good, pretty good one on Sigwin's site, but it just it, it didn't it ended up not applying in the end because it didn't produce something that could actually run. Uh, and the one time that I did make something that would run, I, I realized all I'd actually done was make a shared object and linked and sort of linked that linked to it from another shared object an object file um and and therefore i was i just named it .dll but it was actually you know a dot, oh, it was actually a, a shared object uh, object file whatever so yeah it didn't quite work out for me so that's dll tool the next the next one is dll wrap which um again has no man page and apparently um it's a deprecated tool anyway, so I'm not sure how useful that is either. It is a a tool that you you can kind of get the same results uh, by doing ld dash dash shared, and and even then, once again, it's it's all it has stuff to do with that in, in min gw stuff uh, where you're cross compiling, and that's just not my area of interest. So I'm going to skip over DLL wrap as well. Sadly, the confusion continues with a title a. a, a 
command called dwp, which, uh, again, there's no man page for this. So man dwp nothing. dwp dash dash help comes up with a little bit of uh, help, I guess. It says dwp options file, and it, it gives me a couple of different options. Dash h for help, which we're looking at here. Dash e for exe, or dash dash exec exe. And it says git list of dwo files from exe defaults output to exe.dwp. Dash o file dash dash output file set output dwp file name verbose version verify only. So what I'm getting here is, well, what I got from, from that maybe in relation, because of its relation to proximity to DLL tool and DLL wrap, which of course the proximity is possibly completely erroneous because it's ABCD and then DLL, DLL, and then DWP. So I have no idea if there is actually any kind of relation. But it does say dash E, EXE, and dash dash exec EXE. So there's that EXE thing again. So I keep thinking, okay, well, it's got to have something to do with an EXE file. So I happen to have uh, Wine installed, so I can, I, I installed just now notepad plus plus so dwp dash o blah because i don't know what else to call it um dash e for exec or or exe whatever and then point it to my wine drive underscore c program files x86 pro, uh, notepad plus plus notepad plus plus dot exe and it says error n or fatal error not an elf object file okay well we know what object files are so we can do a w, dwp e on how about our old hello.o file, and it says segmentation fault. So that didn't work either. Okay, well what if we just do wp um, dash e hello? So that's that's the compiled version of hello.o. That was the, the the actual executable, which I should execute right now. Yeah, it works. It says hello world. So uh, dwp e dot slash hello segmentation fault again. Okay. How about just dwp no options dot slash hello? No output file specified. Well, according to the help, it defaults. Oh no, that's the dot dash e. Okay, so apparently it didn't say that this was required, but apparently it is. So dash dash output blah. And that seems to have worked. What did it do exactly? I don't exactly know. So file blah says it's an elf, 64-bit LSB relocatable, stripped. So I should be able to execute it, but apparently not, because I do a dot slash blah, and it doesn't seem to to execute blah at all. So if I do a cat on blah, uh, it looks like there's some some binary data and a string that says debug underscore cu underscore index dot debug underscore tu underscore index dot sh str tab and then some some stuff that i can't read so uh it does seem to be i mean i'll i'll do like a really quick just list it's 400 bytes so it's a tiny little file like i say it, it claims to be elf 64-bit lsb relocatable um but it doesn't seem to be able to execute or anything like that so i'm not really sure what i've created here um and if i even if i give it the executable bit and do a dot slash blah tells me it cannot execute the binary file exec format error so i don't know what i've produced i guess i've produced a dwp maybe so if i do dwp or a dwo dwp dot slash hello output blah dwp i mean not that i would imagine that that would help at all um 
if I do a file on blah.dwp, same kind of information. So dwp help again, uh, I, I guess we could, I could try it with the verbose flag. So dwp dash dash verbose dot slash hello output blah.wp. And the verbosity simply echoes the file that I fed it. So dwp dash dash verbose dot slash hello output blah.wp. DWP, the, the, the one line that I get in return is dot slash hello, as if to verify that that is the file that, that I asked it to work on. Uh, I could do a dash dash verify only, could mix that in there, uh, doesn't, doesn't seem to have, to have done anything different really. Um, it, it does say that it cannot output, cannot open blah.wp, which of course I was, I, I'd earmarked as my output file, so I'm not really sure why, why it's, producing an error about the thing that I'm asking it to output. That seems really odd as well to me. So yeah, this this application, this command does not seem to make sense to me in any way, and I cannot find a good explanation of it online. The one thing that I did find was on Debian, manpages.debian.org, which claims that DWP from the bin utils package, uh, the, this is the man page, and it says it's the dwarf packaging utility. Synopsis, same thing. Um, the, the description, it's the same exact output, so dash O, EXE, dash, or rather dash E, EXE, dash O file, V for verbose or ver verify only, and so on. Reporting bugs, it gives me a bugzilla, and that's it. That's that's the long and short of it. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me at all. It doesn't seem to work. When it does work, it produces something that doesn't doesn't appear to be useful to anything that I've got on my machine. So I guess this is my very long-winded way of saying that I'm going to skip that one as well. All right, let's see if we if we can get out of the, the D's and get into something interesting. And the next one is called Elf Edit, and that does have a man page. It is an application to update the elf header of an elf file. Elf edit updates the elf header of elf files which have the matching elf machine and file types. The options control how and which fields in the elf header should be updated. Elf file dot 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 are the elf files to be updated. So that's in the um, in the description. 32-bit and 64-bit bit elf files are supported as are archives containing elf files. So what this does is it looks at elf well, it modifies elf headers, and that's part of what you see when you do the, a file on something. Like when you do file hello, you get the elf 64-bit LSB executable, x86-64, and so on. That's little bits and pieces of the header information of that elf file. Skip ahead a little bit to read elf, and that is uh, one of the commands in binutils. So if you do read elf-h on, for instance, hello, then you get a, a, a nice list of all of the things that it has. Elf header magic, 7F, 45, 4C, 4.6, and so on. Class, Elf 64, there's that little token. Um, data version 1, current, OS ABI, Unix, GNU. ABI version, 0, type, exec, executable file. So let's, and there's machine, advanced micro devices, x86-64, version 0, x1, and so on. So there's type exec executable file, right? And if I do a dot slash hello, it tells me hello world, so that is true, this this thing is. And if I do a file hello, again, it tells me yes, it's an executable. So that all sort of makes sense. But with elf edit, according to that man page, we can change this stuff. For instance, the output type. Well, according to our listing here, the type is exec executable file, and the man page says that supported exec uh, no, not exec, um, types are, uh, the supported elf file types are rel, exec, 
and DIN, D-Y-N. All right, well, let's see if we, now this will break this application. So um, let's do an elf edit dash dash output dash type uh, equals rel. And then we'll do, oh, that's R-E-L, not R-H-E-L, R-E-L. And we'll do that to hello. No output usually means success. So if we do a dot slash hello, it says dot slash hello cannot execute binary file, exec format error. Why might that be? Well, if we do a file on hello now, we get elf 64-bit LSB relocatable x86 64 version 1 with debug info not stripped so in other words we've we've told our system now that this is not an executable file at all it's a relocatable file and the other one was dyn so if i do that and do a file hello now it thinks it's a 64-bit lsb uh, pi executable statically linked not stripped and so on and if i execute that uh, segmentation fault ouch all right, so let's try to fix this. Elf edit output type equals, I think what it was, it just exec, I think. Hello, and now dot slash hello, hello world, and it works again. So all we've been doing is changing the attributes of this, of, of the file that this, uh, of the information that this file gives about itself. So I'm, I'm setting it back to rel for a moment. Elf edit dash dash output dash type equal rel, hello. And now if I do a read elf dash h for headers on hello, then I have all the same information except type is set to rel, relocatable file, um, and, and so on. So when I set it back to exec, of course, and I do read elf dash h hello, then type is set back to exec executable file. So you could do that um, if you needed to. I don't, I can't myself imagine the need to do that. I don't know what the circumstance would be for me to ha to run into the situation where I would need elf edit to fix the situation, but I, I'm just ex like imagining maybe some corruption in the header um, portion or the loss of header information and maybe you're re resetting it or maybe you're doing testing, re bug testing, and you want to set something. I don't know, but that's that's elf edit and I guess Technically, that's also read elf, which, um, yeah, is 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 exactly what it, what you know essentially what I just demonstrated, except a lot more of it. So dash h is for the file header. Uh, you could also do uh, read elf dash l hello and get a bunch more information about like. Um, the program headers. Uh, you can look at section headers, and and this is all. If this sounds vaguely familiar, then it's because a lot of this stuff is looked at and introspected by Adder Two Line and um, and other debugging tools. So those are kind of kind of useful potentially. Depends on what you're doing, I guess. But yeah, that that's that's the kind of stuff that you can get with Read Elf. And there's lots and lots of different, um, a lot of, a lot of different options for that. So just have a look at the dash dash help or the man page, because you can look at all kinds of things. You can look at notes, you can look at headers, you can look at, um, you can look at each individual section uh, individually. You can look at symbols, a symbol table. That's pretty interesting to look at. So if you do read elf dash s hello, you get quite a lot of output detailing each and every little symbol compiled into this application. And once again, you'll be quite surprised by just what the output is on such a small, like what is hello? It was like a, well, I don't know. I guess we could find out wc dash l hello dot c. I think this one was 15 lines of code and uh, the output of read elf dash s hello is uh, 1,870 lines, so qu qu quite a lot of output there. So that's Read Elf, a really interesting sort of tool to get to get 
information from your binary file. And I think that's it. I think we should end on a high note of getting out of the D section and into the E section, uh, even though we also skipped ahead to the R section. But uh, next up will be GProf and LDBFD and LDGold and NM and object copy and object dump and so on. So come back for more bin utils next time on Good New World Order. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Listening to the GNU World Order Og Cast. This has been Clatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Og Cast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Clatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Clatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at clatu at member.fsf.org. That's clatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. from all pain and from all anxiety.